This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to today's podcast. My name is Dr. Greg Tino from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. The topic today is simulation-based medical education with a specific focus on the use of simulation tools in assessing competency in pulmonary and critical care medicine. We're fortunate today to be joined by Dr. Morgan Soffler, who co-authored a manuscript entitled Raising the Stakes, Assessing Competency with Simulation in Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Soffler is an instructor in medicine at the Harvard Medical School and in the Division of Pulmonary, Critical Care, and Sleep Medicine at the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. She's also Director of Simulation Research at the Carl J. Shapiro Institute for Education and Research. Welcome, Dr. Soffler, and thanks very much for uh, taking the time to participate in the podcast today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. All right. So why don't we just jump right in? So first of all, what is simulation-based medical education? So when we talk about simulation-based medical education, we're really talking about forms of learning that are experiential. So where we're asking, we're having learners perform a particular skill or a set of skills in an environment where we're aiming to mimic reality, but taking out the, 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 actual, the, the actual patient from that interaction. So, so how did you get interested in, in, in this field about simulation-based medical education? Well, I had I had a wonderful experience with simulation when I was a medical student, and I thought it was the absolute most fun way to learn. And the material just really seemed to stick in a way that never really would when I would be reading articles or textbooks. And as I advanced through residency and then fellowship, I continued to seek opportunities to teach through simulation. And seeing just the light bulb go off in, in, in the learners um, as they went through the simulation, asked, you know, they would learn something new, asked to try again, was just incredibly rewarding. And for me, just reinforced how useful the tool of simulation-based uh, medical education really is. So we, you know, we at the University of Pennsylvania have uh, a pretty well-established simulation program, but, but I think many of us um, really uh, don't have a lot of experience or a lot of insight as to how actually simulation improves medical education over our traditional techniques. So you alluded to this in your paper, um, but so can you summarize the published data about how this enhances education of our medical students and other learners? Yeah, absolutely. So you know, because there's a really broad, broad definition for simulation, it could really be in something like a fancy, you know, a fancy simulation center with, with high-tech mannequins to just using standardized patients. Um, for an encounter. There's a lot of literature that that is a bit all over the place. But I would say that in general, uh, a lot of the published literature actually started outside of the field of medical education and was more in, in things like um, uh, in pilots, for example, and only recent re- recently really um, started to become is relatively young in the medical world. Um, and a lot of the, the early data published in medicine came out of the surgical literature and so was really very procedural based um, and showed particular things just um, in, to give you broad ranges of categories. But you know, the way learners felt about their skill improvement um, with uh, medical simulation compared to just kind of on the fly um, on the fly learning, um, uh, you know, or practicing on, you know, practicing on patients, having supervised, supervised practice, 
on real life patients. There was better confidence among learners and better skill acquisition. Um, and so a lot of that came out of surgery. And then I think now um, we're seeing it a lot more in medicine as well. Again, a lot more data published on procedural simulation and improvements in learner performance and learner attitudes and in learner knowledge after going through simulation versus supervised practice is kind of the more traditional for procedures. Um, and now I think we're moving a little bit more and we're seeing more literature coming, coming out about scenario, simulation scenarios. So dealing with complex patient scenarios, um, communications with families, um, a lot of that literature is a lot younger and mostly focuses on learner attitudes um, uh, as of now, but we're trying to make that a little bit more robust. Um, and our group is definitely interested in, in, in trying to show things like patient outcomes just a lot harder um, in the medical education research world. You know, and I suppose that, that one, of the, one of the benefits of simulation in, in clinical scenarios is really teaching somebody about a clinical scenario that's important that may, you may not encounter, for example, in a month in the ICU, but that's important for them to know and to, and to manage, not so much in real life, but, but in a simulated environment. Um, is, is that one of the foci of, of simulation, again, to, to look at important but potentially less common clinical scenarios? Exactly, exactly. You know, and if, if we look at the ways that we can tell how what our trainees learn throughout the course of their training or within a month in the ICU, you know, or on their clerkship rotations, we have things like like standardized tests, which, you know, give you, you know, uh, give you a good focus of, of what they learned based on what you asked. But how in depth can you really get on a standardized test, I think is very limiting. And if you're just doing things on the fly, watching your 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 learners on rounds, um, describing, um, uh, watching them perform procedures, you're really limited to what your patient population is and the and the patient and the problems that your patients have. So you really can't guarantee that your that your pulmonary and critical care fellow is going to show you how they can take care of an ECMO patient, for example, right. or how they deal right. with a procedure complication. Um, if that doesn't occur while you're on with them. So simulation really gives you that flexibility of, of dealing with more complex tasks, um, but guaranteeing that you get to observe somebody doing a, taking care of a particular problem mm -hmm. or performing a particular task. And you know, one of the things you mentioned in your paper that I thought was interesting is that simulation has been shown to improve patient outcomes, and you alluded to it a couple seconds ago, as well as hospital financial outcomes. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, so you know, it's it's generally very hard to show changes in patient-related outcomes in medical age education research just due to issues of study study power. So it's very notable that there is a there is a, a prominent group that has done a lot of work using simulation for central line training, and that group showed that compared to their normal their normal training practices, which didn't include um, a simulation-based intervention that after they, they implemented the simulation-based intervention, they had lower bloodstream infections um, in their patient population. And of course, that then translated into lower hospital costs and things like that. So it's one of the few examples actually in the medical education literature where we see a, an education-targeted um, intervention really improve patient outcomes. So I think that's a wonderful uh, place to start. And I really want to move to the focus of your paper, uh, which was the value of, of simulation-based medical education as a summative assessment tool, particularly in critical care. So my first question on that is, so what are the main problems or limitations with our traditional modes of assessment that we've used over a number of years? What are the biggest problems with, with them? 
Yeah, I, I think I alluded a bit to this before, but you know, when we talk about traditional assessment methods, we're thinking of kind of more standardized testing on one hand versus supervised practice or observing, observing trainees on uh, either on rounds or performing procedures and things like that. And on, they're really on one end of the spectrum. You know, on for tests, you have complete control over the content that you're asking about. But especially in critical care where patients are incredibly complex and the scenarios, you have to not only know, have knowledge content, but there's situational awareness and all these other things that you, you just can't capture necessarily on a, in a multiple choice question versus on the total on the other end of the spectrum where you have zero control over what your learner, um, what your trainee um, is taking care of, you know, you just get whatever is in, is in your ICU at the time, what the, you know, the handful of problems that your patients have, and you get to make some evaluation off of that. But, um, you know, those observations are often unstructured. Um, they're, and they're felt by learners to be very subjective. Um, and so for that reason, you sort of have either end of the spectrum, you know, overly objective, overly subjective, um, and I think that for simulation, you really have this opportunity to strike a nice balance between getting to choose what your content is, getting to um, getting to pick what sort of complexities you want to add into a case, and then making that ob- making a standardized ob- observation in real time, um, and being able to give that feedback to your learner. I think is where simulation really bridges the gap um, and and fills a much uh, 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 need in the uh, in the assessment world for pulmonary and critical care fellows, but other other trainees and learners as well. Great. Um, you specifically, you and your and your co-authors wrote specifically that that SBME is particularly suited for assessing and developing skills such as communication, interdisciplinary teamwork, uh, and, and critical thinking. I, I'd like you to touch on on each of these as you can. And one of the things, and, and you and I, um, we talked about this a little bit offline, is how do these sessions, what do these sessions look like? What actually happens during a simulated session that highlights, for example, communication or critical thinking? So I think, I think it'd be helpful not only to, to get your thoughts on how you do assess these skills in those particular areas, but actually what it looks like. Give us a picture in our mind's eye of what a simulation session looks like. Sure. Um, so depending on, on, the, on the resources available, it's going to look different for different institutions. But at our institution, we have an actual simulation center, so an area that's designated for simulation education activities. Um, and uh, it takes a lot of preparation, actually, before going into the simulation session. Obviously, you need to know you know, what your objectives are for the learners and think about what kind of resources you need. So for us, we are lucky enough to have staff down in our simulation center um, that are full-time um, and are able to act as what we call confederates. So they're actually, our staff are nurses by training, um, but they can, they so they usually are playing nurses for us in the simulation encounter, but can also play family, you know, disgruntled family members, consultants, um, you know, really with enough preparation, whatever, whatever we need them to do, they're able to do for us. Um, we come up with a baseline script, um, which just sort of has key, the critical actions. So what we're looking for the learners to do and how we might change the scenario once they perform those critical actions. 
And for certain cases where, you know, when there's a communication case, for example, often we don't necessarily need to, if it's a patient in the ICU who's maybe intubated or it's an end of life conversation where that conversation might is probably happening in some sort of family meeting room, we'll simulate a family meeting room. We'll put tissues on the, on the table. We'll have our Confederate family member be there and uh, we'll have, um, and we'll have the learner, you know, deliver, you know, know, they'll, they'll be told what the scenario is and they'll be delivering the news or having that conversation with the family. Meanwhile, we have observers that are out of sight um, observing the learner and taking notes and um, preparing to debrief and give that learner feedback. So that's for a communication simulation. But for something like critical thinking, for example, we we're going to have the patient probably in the room, uh, the, the learner in the room with the patient. In our case, the patient is usually a mannequin, um, a very high-tech mannequin that has pulses, breath sounds, heart sounds, wow. pupil, pupillary changes. Um, and we'll look at how that learner, you know, assesses the patient, does a physical exam, communicates with that patient, takes in all of the extraneous data, like the vital signs. If the patient's on a ventilator, we'll have them look at that. Um, and then they'll be able to hopefully manage that patient and we'll give feedback on that. Terrific. How about, how about the teamwork aspects? How do you simulate that? Yeah, so we see a lot of um, we're a lot. We focus a lot on interdisciplinary teamwork. Uh, often, when it comes to things like uh, uh, patient resuscitation, um, and we're trying to expand the use of that because obviously we have to work in teams a lot more than just when we're you know, performing CPR on a patient. But um, essentially, there we try to incorporate. Um, multi, multiple disciplines into the sim scenario. So we'll try to get pharmacy, nursing, um, uh, uh, and physicians all in the same room together and um, going through a code scenario um, all together. Um, and in that way, I mean, it's such a unique opportunity to to have a situation like that where um, after right after that, and you know you're all there to improve and get better. You know it's low stakes because the you know, because you're dealing with a mannequin, and you can come out after and debrief. And it gives all of the learners across all disciplines or all of the practitioners the ability to say what what worked and what didn't work. And then you get to go back into the sim arena and practice again. Um, and uh, so, you know, those are some of the ways that we use simulation for those for those skills. Um, and at our institution, we have curricula for uh, for in for um, ICU communication skills and for critical thinking with our medical students that are really simulation based curriculum. Terrific! Thank you for very much for that. Um, so, as a related question, so you alluded a little bit to the human resources that are necessary for a top notch simulation program. So. How expensive is this, and and how are these simulation programs funded, either your institution or or others, based on your experience? Yeah, so um, it 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 is costly. So I would say it. it I'm sure it ranges um, for different institutions based on the resources that that they can that they can afford. Um, for us, I would say we definitely have a um, a very high functioning um, simulation program, and for us, um, the approximate cost is about three thousand dollars per day. Um, to run our institution. And we're in a 4,500 square foot simulation space. So we're able to operate two simulation spaces at once. We have our two full-time nurses who um, both run the center and then also act as our, you know, Confederates help us, help us with the logistics of, of creating the scenario. There's a manager, an administrative assistant, and co-directors. 
Um, and then a lot of the faculty, for them, it's really volunteering their time. So we have a committee um, that oversees all of the operations in our simulation center to make sure that this expensive resource is being used appropriately and uh, the resource is being allocated, you know, where it would have the most uh, the most impact. And so those faculty don't get paid. Um, and usually the faculty that are running the sim scenarios um, or sessions, you know, are they do it um, uh, with their with their own free time. Um, where the funding comes from, I think, you know, for, for us, for larger universities, a lot of that comes, you know, from the university. Um, I don't know the specifics about, about some of the other, of the other major centers, but I do know that some of these simulation centers themselves can generate some revenue, um, through CME courses, um, as well. So that's, um, you know, potential way to also be funding some of these, uh, centers. And if indeed, you know, this kind of assessment and teaching improves, you know, patient outcomes and, you know, and shortens length of stay, et cetera, and diminishes complications, uh, you know, it's interesting um, that it may well actually be um, cost effective in the long term. So uh, it'd be interesting to see how some of this data gets um, gets disseminated out there. But but thank you. Um, so I, one of the things I was interested in and surprised was that 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 uh, simulation may not be an optimal tool for assessing physical exam skills and like things like ventilator management in the ICU. So why is that? What are the barriers in those specific circumstances? Yeah. So you in, sim, in the simulation medical education world, we use the term fidelity to describe how realistic the simulation scenario is. And for some circumstances, low fidelity is meaning you know it doesn't quite look you know look like real life is completely fine. So, you know, practicing central line insertion on a chicken breast, for example, would be low fidelity. But when you're really looking to practice certain hand skills um, in a simulated environment is probably fine. For um, higher level learners, however, it's really important that you have um, a high fidelity simulation scenario, um, especially when you're dealing with complex scenarios like things like ventilator management or interpretation of physical exam, uh, physical exam findings. And the reason there is that, um, you know, unless you have a, a hookup to the ventilator where the ventilator and mannequin interface is works really well, so there's no air leaks, um, you can apply PEEP no problem, um, the you know, waveforms look like they would on a normal lung, then that really is, is fine. But if in most cases you may have some difficulties truly making it simulate what, you do, what it would look like on a real patient. And okay. your learner, if they're savvy, is going to notice that and is going to try to interpret that data in a way that you didn't intend them to um, and is really going to take away from the objectives, you know, of the assessment. And similarly for physical exam findings, some of the mannequins make pretty mechanical sounds. You know, some of the, the really expensive, really good ones, maybe to, to a lesser degree. But, you know, you don't want a medical student interpret, interpreting, you know, the the mechanics of the of the mannequin as a plural rub or a pericardial rub when that wasn't the objective of the case, for example. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so the importance of establishing the validity of an assessment tool is something you and your co-author spent some time talking about. So what validated assessment tools are actually out there that are being used? Yeah. So we, we try to steer away from using the term validated assessment tool and talk a little bit more about val val the, the validity evidence of a particular tool. Um, and especially in the world of, of you know, assessing, um, assessing some skills because, you know, there's typically no gold standard for, for competence and, um, and things like that. So um, there are few, there are really few validated assessment tools. 
um, or I would say tools that provide, you know, um, they're, they provide validity evidence to some degree, but I think it would be hard to say there's, you know, there are some true, you know, really, you know, gold standard validated tools that are used in the simulation world. That being said, I think you'd find the majority of tools that do provide a lot of good quality validity evidence are really procedure focused. Um, so in the critical care world, we see a lot of central line insertion um, uh, checklist assessments um, that are used for simulation. Um, and those um, those typically um, have a lot of validity evidence behind them. But for some of these complex scenarios or communication uh, communication critical thinking scenarios, there are really few um, few tools out there that um, have a lot of validity evidence um, to use. And so that's kind of what we're hoping to inspire people to do is to go out there and give us some of the tools so that we can start using simulation for assessment in a really you know smart way. So you made you and your, your your group made three recommendations about sort of the the guiding principles for developing a simulation program. So can you tell the audience what those what those three are? Yeah. So our first um, our our first recommendation was to really set clear goals and objectives when you're using simulation um, based evaluations. And this is really to mitigate the concerns that 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 people might have about the about uh, about um, assaulting the safety of the learning environment. So, you know, you want learners when they come down to the simulation center or wherever it is that you're doing your learning to feel like this is the place where I can ask questions, where I can make mistakes, you know, because that is the arena that you want them to do it in rather than out there in the real world taking care of, of patients. Um, but obviously we change the objectives when we use simulation for assessment. And it's just really important to make that very clear. This is an exceptional simulation um, exercise that we're doing today. That we are, you know, we are going to be talking about your performance and giving you feedback on your performance, and it may not be confidential in the way some of the other simulation sessions may have been or will be in the future. And we think that by making that clear up front, you can really, you know, keep keep hold of that safe learning environment for for the formative, uh, the more formative exercises. Um, secondly, we, you know, if you're going to be using simulation for assessment, then you need to have a plan for what to do when your learners aren't necessarily up to the task. And so we do recommend that if you're going to be implementing any assessment program, but especially, you know, this, these simulation-based programs where you might see somebody do something that you really think needs remediation, to have that plan set forward before you release your curriculum or your, you know, your assessment plan. Um, and then thirdly, really just speaks to what we were just discussing about where, you know, we shouldn't, we should really be trying to use tools that provide good validity evidence for um, our assessment. Obviously, some of these things are high, you know, we're advocating to use these simulation assessments as really high stakes assessments. So letting practitioners perform certain procedures, letting them um, cover certain rotations, um, things like that, those are pretty high stakes. And so you don't want to be making judgments on somebody that really aren't valid if your tool isn't very good. And so we recommend that we really um, be creating and, and validating tools for assessing um, in order to make this work well. So um, are there standard sort of national SBME curricula? Um, because it would seem to me that if not, there'd be some value in doing that, again, at training programs, whether they be at the residency or the fellowship level, rather than each institution developing one on, on their own. Are there, are there some standard 
uh, as I said, national um, curricula? There really are not standardized curricula for for simulation-based education, and you know, few few standardized curricula, you know, even outside of simulation right. for education. True. And I think yep. I think that the the difficulty there, you know, especially for simulation, is going to be the resource issue. So there's such wide variability in resources available for simulation-based activities that I think it would be very hard to hold institutions to a standard um, in that regard. You know, the the advantage to having a standardized uh, curriculum would be um, the creation of uh, the use for um, simulation for assessment and the ability to, to create more valid instruments if we were all using the same scenarios and having the same curricula, same objectives. But I do think that for different institutions, different needs that they might have from a learning, you know, learning perspective, but also from a resource perspective, it, I can't imagine, um, I can't imagine it working very well at this point in time. Got it. So this is a this is a question that is really not focused on critical care or on fellowship training, but as you know, the ACGME and, and residency programs no longer require procedural competence for their residents, and this is something I deal with literally. Um, on a daily basis, uh, when the patient on the medical service needs a procedure, and we don't have a you know a resident who's trained or who's deemed to be competent to do it, so do you think procedural competence, which was certainly a thing when I was training, do you think that it should be, uh, and is and is SBME the way to do that, the way to accomplish uh, procedural competence? Yeah. I think um, I know talking about you know the definition of competence and and all of that you know opens up a whole other can of worms. Um, but you know, personally, you know, I would I would advocate for some some standard of performance, at least to the very basics of of safety and sterile technique and things like that when it comes to procedures. Um, I know, you know, currently, you know, the ACGME is requiring only that residents be able to perform, you know, safely and competently um, in ACLS, venous blood draws, arterial blood draws, Pap smears, placing an IV, um, and that may be a little bit in flux as well, but. Um, I do think that there's a place for simulate, you know, to assess somebody's basic safety habits um, using simulation before um, and and holding them to a certain standard um, for, you know, lack of a better word, rather than competence before they're able to perform those procedures on actual patients. I think that simulation provides that safe environment to do that and to really do, you know, what we call deliberate practice, practice a skill over and over, get very specific feedback until they're able to perform that particular skill up to a standard, and simulation is fantastic for that. Great. So obviously, SVME is a big part of what you do, and it sounds like what's happening at, at your institution. So so what is the status of, of simulation, both as a summative evaluation tool, as well as in skill assessment and learning at, at, uh, at Beth Israel Deaconess? Give us yeah, a sense so, of what it looks like. Yeah. Um, so, you know, across different learner levels, we're starting to um, look at different initiatives using simulation for assessment. Um, uh, my group and a, a lot of the, the co-authors on this paper with me are also, are currently looking at using simulation for assessment in internal medicine uh, clerks um, and how, how the incorporation of a simula summative simulation assessment contributes to their the interpretation of their performance overall in the clerkship. What sorts of gaps does does the simulation um, identify um, as either, you know, being maybe, you know, better than we thought or maybe needing um, some remediation compared to what we knew about them otherwise um, based on the more traditional assessments. So we're focusing right now on students. Um, there's also some discussion about using simulation assessments and evaluations for faculty 
So using it for things like onboarding, making sure, again, that everybody is performing up to the certain standard of the institution. Um, you know, practices are different at different institutions, so getting everybody feeling comfortable um, and practicing um, uh, to get them to a certain standard, and also for continuing med medical education as well. Um, so for faculty, for students, and then we're also rolling out a program now with our fellows where we're coming up with a standard, you know, a standard curriculum for our pulmonary and critical care fellows and um, hoping to incorporate some uh, assessment and evaluation um, of the fellows um, into, that, um, into that curriculum. So what is the specific focus for the, for the pulmonary critical care fellows? What, what, what specific skills are you, are you currently assessing in a critical way? So we're trying to focus on skills that we think, you know, that are um, are difficult, you know, can be difficult or or variably assessed otherwise in the fellowship. Um, so things like um, ventilator troubleshooting. So we are trying to use the ventilator and trying to overcome some of those issues that I had discussed earlier about the fidelity, um, right. which, uh, but so um, using, um, really going after areas where, there's not like data to really guide um, as much. So, for example, we've done sessions with our fellows on performing ACLS in the ICU. So, you know, a lot of the data that we have about ACLS is on outpatients, um, uh, and we extrapolate that to inpatient um, cardiac arrest. But in in the ICU, where you have all of these different tools that you can use using physiologic parameters um, to assure that you're administering um, the best CPR. Um, those are really all new things for the fellows and are less data driven. And so, you know, for, we try to focus on on those things, the ambiguous things that we anticipate that the fellows might be having difficulties with, rather than the straightforward, you know, algorithmic types of um, types of uh, cases. So, uh, Morgan, in many ways, your paper is a call to action about simulation-based medical education, specifically in critical care. So. Are you? What steps are you and your group planning uh, moving forward? Not only at your place, but but again, looking to to broaden this to a national uh, to a national forum. Yeah. Um, you know, so our group is. Um, you know, we're planning on releasing the results of our of our findings um, about the medical students, and you know, hoping to show that there's a lot of added benefit in using simulation based assessments, um, incorporating those into the students' um, evaluations. And less even for evalu you know, evaluation purposes and recommendations and things, but really to improve the feedback and learning of, of the students is really the, the, um, the goal. Um, we're hoping also, um, uh, again, we're looking in addition to the faculty and fellows and expanding use there, um, we're going to be studying using simulation as a tool um, in CME, um, in the CME population um, as well. Um, and then, you know, I think that there's some gap in the literature and there's a lot of talk about this concern about the learning environment and our group is also interested in actually looking into that in more detail through focus groups um, uh, and learners of different levels to see really, you know, what are their feelings about using simulation for assessment? You know, do they think it would be fair? Do they think it would um, accurately show their skill? What's their experience been so far? So these are some of the things that we're hoping to look at um, and share with the rest, um, the, re the rest of our field. In general, what are your fellows telling you then? Are they, is this something they like and they find um, they're excited about? 
Yeah, the informal feedback so far has been very positive. Um, the opportunity to really get observed doing one, you know, taking care of a really complex patient and getting feedback right after that, um, getting to then go back into the sim arena and try it again. Um, so far, the feedback, um, you know, the program is young, but the feedback's been very positive from the fellows, and we're hoping to, you know, formally look at that um, uh, so that we could hopefully make it make it generalizable um, for, you know, for other programs that may wish to adopt. Um, a, sim a similar curriculum. So, so far, so good. Well, it sounds great, and, and, and I wish you uh, a lot of luck moving forward. So any, any last thoughts or comments, Morgan? Um, no, I, I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about, about uh, this topic, which, you know, I think is very exciting, and there's a lot of work that we can do. And I think that the last thing that I would add is that you know, we all often focus on assessment um, as, you know, this summative End, you know, end of the rotation, end of the year um, uh, uh, type of feedback and try to separate it from formative. But I think our group really feels and, you know, hopes that others see that when you have a good assessment method and you have a great way to really show learners where they stand in comparison to their peers, um, you know, or what skills they need to improve on, that that is formative. Um, and so we sort of advocate to, you know, to avoid separating those terms um, so much um, and to really see that the, the better we can assess our learners, you know, hopefully the, the better that, you know, they can become, the more confident they can feel in their skills and, you know, the safer and more effective, you know, patient care can be. Very well said and a good way to end our conversation, uh, Morgan. So, again, I'd like to thank Dr. Soffler for her participation in the podcast. And I hope you've enjoyed the podcast uh, as much as I have and I found the whole discussion on the use of simulation moving forward uh, quite compelling. So thank you very much. Until next time, this is Dr. Greg Tino, podcast editor for the Annals of the ATS. Thank you for joining in. <laughs>